movement. And really this whole series is uh, about movement because all of the themes, kind of sub-themes to this book of Philippians are challenging us to move, to action. In fact, the gospel is about movement. And it's the reality. And so a couple weeks ago we looked at a movement of God toward us. An amazing movement of Jesus Christ. You find it here in chapter 2, verse 5. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you hear that, it's one of those passages in my mind that if you were to ever create a soundtrack to be played while you're reading your Bible, it's for this verse. You know, it's like this crescendoing like movement in this passage where we go, oh my word. I mean, that's the Gospel. It's Jesus Christ saying, I'm going to give up everything for you. I'm going to give up my life for you. I'm going to come here and give up all of the blessings I have to demonstrate a perfect life, to live it out, to offer myself as a sacrifice for your sins so that one day every knee should bow, every tongue should confess, that one day everything is going to be about the praise and the honor and the glory of God and we're going to be amazed. That's the movement of Christ towards us. And I need to be reminded of that. I don't know if you do, but I probably need to be reminded of that daily. At the least, I need to be reminded of it every week. The fact that, as Nancy talked about, that I'm accepted. In Christ, I'm accepted. I'm not accepted because I obey. I'm accepted, and then because of that acceptance, I obey. I need to be reminded of the fact that That His life, the Gospel, motivates me. It creates in me a joy. It creates in me this this excitement for all that He has done. And I don't have to live with fear and insecurity. Rather, I live with joy. I live knowing that the debt's been paid. I live knowing that there's freedom in Christ. I mean, the Gospel needs to remind me on a regular basis that I walk with God not for what I can get from God, but I walk with God because when I do, I get God. That I have this relationship. That there's this connection between the two of us because of the Gospel. I need to be reminded of that. Elise Fitzpatrick makes this statement. It's going to be up on the screen. She says, Like you, I need to hear that Gospel song. That song that reminds me that He lives in me and strengthens me. 
She says, I need to hear that gospel song over and over again because my soul is a sieve and the gospel leaks out of it, leaving only the husk of Christianity, my self-righteousness and obligations. See, if we're not reminded of this on a regular basis, what ends up happening is we see this Christian life as one of duty. One of obligation. That the very things that I do, somehow I have to muster the strength to do them. Somehow I just have to fight through it and do it because it's just duty. It's what you do. But no, it's this motivation that's so different. And Ryan spoke about it. It's the Gospel that motivates. But the interesting thing is this. You go one verse further. Verse 11, now we're in verse 12. Look at it. First word, therefore. So Paul says, listen, God had this movement toward you amazing, beautiful. You're accepted. You're loved. There's no fear. There's all these amazing things about the Gospel. And then the next word is, therefore. And he goes on to say, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we go, wow, that's, that's a pretty hard thing to say right after that. I mean, like that, I liked the first 11 verses. Let's all be together. Let's love one another. God's done amazing things. And then now you're giving me this, therefore, work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And what, what I think we want a lot of times in the church is this. We just want to go, hold up, Russ. Let's just, let me bask in the motivation that God just loves me. Let's just live there. And let's not get to verse 12. Let's not get to the next thing. But the reality is it's this pendulum that needs to be balanced. There is this movement of Christ that motivates us to do something. See, that's what's unique about motivation. Motivation motivates, right? I mean, motivation motivates us to do something. Look at this definition. I looked up what motivation means. Motivation is a psychological feature that arouses an organism to action toward a desired goal. It's the reason for the action. It's that which gives purpose. See, motivation motivates us towards movement. Motivation asks us to do something. And that's where we find ourselves today as we get to this passage. This passage is just an amazing look at the fact that you can't have faith without action. You can't have this relationship without somehow, somehow also having a calling. And that's what this is about. So I want you to look down at what many people would call the travelogue right in the middle of Paul's letter here. Find it in verses 19 through 30. Let's read it together. Just follow along with me as I read. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not so, or not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. 
For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. See here, what we get is a snapshot of two men that are incarnating Christ. Two men that realize that the work of Christ on their behalf motivates them to live out what Christ looks like on an everyday basis. And what I want to do is just highlight two things really quick that I think they both embodied completely. The first one is this. That we, just like them, need to incarnate Christ by demonstrating gospel community. That we, like them, need to incarnate Christ by demonstrating gospel community. Let's look in verse 20. It says this of Timothy, For I have no one like him. It literally means I have no one equal in soul. I have no one who shares the same mind and the same heart and the same desires like Timothy. He moves to the next little line and he says this, Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare? Who thinks of you? Who's concerned for you? He even goes on to say that that others seek their own interests, but not Timothy. Timothy is a guy that seeks your interests and seeks the interest of Christ. You look a little further in Epaphroditus. It says this, First of all, he was a minister to Paul's need. I mean, they specifically, the church specifically sent him to go meet the need of Paul in prison. They cared enough. They genuinely wanted to demonstrate enough community to Paul that they said, we're going to send a messenger to spend time with you, to meet your need. Then it goes on to say about Epaphroditus that he was longing for all of them. He leaves his church. Imagine this. We send someone out to another part of the country to go meet someone's need in the body of Christ. And the whole while he's gone, he's thinking about this group. The whole while he's gone, he's longing to be back with this group of people. With those that love him and are concerned for them. In fact, it says that Epaphroditus was distressed because they knew that the church knew he was sick. I mean, what we see here are pictures, clear pictures of the fact that genuine gospel community was happening. That people were caring for one another. That they were loving one another. In fact, you see it all throughout this passage. You see this idea of honoring, of esteeming. We talked about it in the uh, Ten Words series. Giving weight to someone else. Putting their interests first. In fact, uh, Philippians 2, 1-4, through you can glance at it really quick. It says that we're of one mind and of one heart and of one accord that There's this idea that we put others' interests first, that we don't look to our own interests, that we're willing to be humble with one another, to sacrifice with one another. And that's what these two guys were embodying. That's what these two guys were living out. And you know what I think 
gospel community requires? It requires investment. The only way that these guys had this kind of interaction with people around them, with the church, was because they invested in the church, and the church invested in them. They invested in relationships, and they got investment back. See, I fear that what has happened in the church, if we look across the church in the world, if we look across the church in this nation, what we often see is relationships, real relationships being replaced by social networking. What I see is a lot of relationships that are starting to become more and more fractured and less and less about genuine concern for one another and more about whatever I can fit into 140 characters. We're more concerned about, instead of being concerned about the very idea of knowing someone and being known by someone, we tend to just you know, want to chat with people, kind of get the surface level. In fact, I heard this just uh, the other day. One person in said dorm room, right here, e-chatting. Someone walks in, who are you e-chatting? Oh, I'm e-chatting Bill. You mean Bill like in the room next door, Bill? Like, get up and walk 12 steps, Bill? That Bill? Yeah, we're just chatting back and forth. But that's what we do. We, like, we replace relationships with this idea of networking. What ends up happening is you have a lot of friends, right? You have a lot of people that you know. You know everybody's name, but you don't know anyone. I mean, I would venture to say there's people in here right now that are sitting there and they're in the midst of two, three hundred people and they feel lonely. They feel like maybe everybody knows their name, but nobody really knows them. I mean, that's not gospel community. We've started to, instead of use social networking as a supplement to relationships, we've replaced it. We've somehow allowed these things to to short-circuit God's intention of knowing someone and being known by someone. I mean, that's what it's about. I mean, here, we, you know, we value small groups. We talk about them a lot. We want everyone to be in a group. But here's the deal. Groups are not synonymous with community. There's no system that you can set up that's going to create instant community. It doesn't happen. It requires investment. It requires that you pursue it. It requires that you sacrifice for it. You surrender for it. You you fight for it. You prioritize it. It's this idea that I'm actually going to invest in it if I want to get something out of it. See, people don't stumble or fall into community. They pursue it. So the question is, are we, are you, pursuing community? Are you pursuing relationships? Are you pursuing knowing people and being known by people? This week, what I want you to do is sit in your group and ask that question. I mean, even at the group level, are we actually knowing and caring for one another? Are we investing in one another? And ask yourself the question, how do I do that? How do I embody this idea? How do I live out like Paul or Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus? How do I live out this idea of 
caring for one another, putting others' interests first. I'm going to pick on Bart here for a minute in the back. Bart is doing an internship. And I've just loved getting to know Bart over this year and spend time with him. But Bart is a guy that, that I think is trying to embody this and live out this quality. Because Bart is the kind of guy that literally, I was talking to him the other day, and I go, hey, what are, what are some of your goals? And he goes, you know what my goal is? I want to know everyone in church. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, no, I want to know everybody's name. I mean, if I'm a part of this community, if I really belong here, then I should know people and I should be known by people. I want to know everyone's name. I want to know their business. I want to know who they are, what makes them tick. I want to know stuff about them. And I'll tell you what, if you know Bart at all, Bart is the kind of guy that he will come up to you and he will ask how you're doing and he wants to know. And then the next time he comes, he's going to ask you how the thing is that you told him about went. He's going to ask you. But here's the deal. He will look at you. I'm picking on Caleb here. He will look at you. Caleb's getting worried. And someone could walk by. A parade could go by. And he won't know. You know why he won't know? Because he's so locked in on you. He's right there with you in that moment. And you know what I think gospel community is? It's being right there in the moment with people. And even when they're not there, you're still with them in the moment. It's Cassie. She's not here at this moment, but we're still with her in this moment if we really are in community. Otherwise, we're just social networking. Look me up on Facebook. I'm there. And that's, that's not what it's about. So talk about it this week. The second thing is this. We incarnate Christ by participating in the Gospel. We incarnate Christ by participating in the Gospel. Look here at Timothy. It says in verse 22 that he served with me in the Gospel. The literal word is he slaved with me in the Gospel. Paul is saying that Timothy slaved for the Gospel. You look at Epaphroditus. It says this about him. Fellow worker, fellow soldier, fellow messenger, fellow minister. Later on it says that he risked his life for the Gospel. You start reading this first section of Philippians and what you see is striving for one another. Striving with one another for the sake of the Gospel. That it's fruitful labor. That I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. That to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's all of these things that are are movement-oriented, action-oriented, participatory. I have to participate in it. But this is where I think, again, is another one of those like, Rubber meets the road. I'm kind of getting rubbed the wrong way. I just want to enjoy God's movement toward me and not necessarily my movement outward. Because here's what I think we've done wrong. We somehow associate those words that Paul just used and we put on them these false expectations. What I mean is, we go, okay, Paul said these great things and so that means the only way for me to participate in the Gospel is if I leave everything behind and become a missionary in Siberia. Then, I'm actually participating. Or, we say, like the rich young ruler, I need to sell all my possessions, give everything to the poor, and if I do that, if I do some radical, crazy, amazing thing, that's the way I participate in the Gospel. And I think it's a little bit different than that. I think what it is, is starting to realize that because you are in Christ, because you are 
a participant in the gospel, it requires that you define your life by that. You don't have to necessarily add a lot of things to your life. You just have to define what it is you do by that. I'll give you a silly illustration. If you were to ask Lance Armstrong, I used to cheer for him, amazing racer, incredible athlete, but if you were to ask Lance Armstrong, Lance Armstrong, who are you? He would say, I'm a Tour de France bike racer. That's what I am. And everything about Lance is defined by who he is. So if Lance and I went out to lunch together, I would probably get some nice meal. It would be great. Lance would measure his food. And that's what he does when he prepares for races. He gets out measuring, measures, weighs it, okay, the exact amount of ounces I eat it. If you put like an extra crouton on there, he'd go, knock it off. No, that's, that's not a part of the equation. You know, I don't measure things. I measure it and I live by it. If he and I were to, to, to look at our sleep schedule, his is more refined. He sleeps longer. He has specific times that he sleeps. Why? Because everything about his life is about his calling. The question I think we have to start asking ourselves is, is everything in our life somehow defined by our calling? Would we say we've redefined our life because now we are a follower of Christ? And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. And even if we ask it, we need to say, well, what does it look like? What does it look like to define my life differently? What does it look like to, to actually engage and participate in the gospel? So because what I think we have done in the church is we've created a lot of fans of the gospel, but not a lot of participants in the gospel. There's a big difference. A big difference. I mean, you might put on the jersey, like my son did. Got one for Christmas, put it on. He might put on the hat. He might look like a Colts player, shy of 300 pounds, but, <laughs> but he might look the part. But the question is, is he really participating? The answer is no. He's not a participant on the team. He's a fan of the team. There's a big difference. I know we're heading into this Olympic season. We're already in it. I know we're in it because uh, this, my wife loves the Olympics. doesn't matter if it's summer. doesn't matter if it's winter. She is in to the Olympics. Okay? I mean, so much so that the Olympics is on and our flag starts to rise. The music comes in from the background. Tears start to be shed by my wife. Like, oh, this moment is amazing. Like, I love it. She is, she is there in the moment. You know, someone falls down, hurts their knee. Shannon's like, oh, my knee hurts now too. Because, like, <laughs> she is so in the moment, right, with the Olympics. But what's funny is what we do with the Olympics is we do this. We sit back on our couch. We turn on the TV. We look at it. We, you know, we're eating nachos. We're drinking some beer. We're sitting there. And then we get up. And at the end of the evening, we go, we just won six gold medals. It's amazing. <laughs> and I go, we? We won six gold? You mean they won six gold medals in which we're celebrating. I didn't put in any time. I'm not strapping on skis and jumping 140 feet. and le- like I'm not doing ski jumping. I-, I have not put in all this effort and time and energy and sacrifice into it. But see, that's what we've been called to. Not to be a fan of the gospel. 
but to actually be a participant in it too. To actually work for it. Not because it's duty or obligation, but because the very motivation of Christ motivates us to do that. So the question is this. As you get with your group this week, talk about it. How is our group participating in the Gospel? How, how do I, as a person, need to participate in the Gospel? What do you and your roommate need to do to participate in the Gospel? What do you and your wife need to do to participate in the Gospel? How are you going to encourage your children to participate in the Gospel? Because, see, the thing is this, that if we are all a part of the body, all parts of the body have a role to play. It doesn't have to be a grand and glorious role. It can be a simple, everyday kind of role that participates in the Gospel. But ask yourself, am I doing that? These two men shine as examples, in my opinion, of what it really means to to incarnate Christ. And so my challenge is this. Incarnate Him. Show people what He looks like through gospel community, by relationships, real relationships, and show it by the way we participate in the gospel, by the way we put into the team the effort, the time, the sacrifice. Let's pray. God, may our lives be defined by the fact that we are accepted in You. May our lives be defined by the fact that we are loved by You. But may our lives also be defined by this idea that when we are in You, when we are a part of the body of Christ, that we are required to to love, to care for, to be concerned for, to put others' interests first, to actually participate in relationships, and then to participate in the Gospel. So God, may You call us to that. May You continue to remind us of those things. And may You inspire us, because of Your example, to live that kind of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.